Well, I want to encourage you to turn uh, one more time, if you would, to the book of uh, Psalms, chapter 1. Psalm, chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Psalm, uh, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers." Let us pray. Father, again, we're so thankful that we have an advocate with your pure, holy Son. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. And I thank you for the time we have enjoyed, just the time of worship and fellowship. We thank you for the the glorious uh, unity of heart we have because of your Son, what he has done for us. And I would pray uh, these moments for the, the clear working and help of your Holy Spirit to uh, communicate your holy word in a way that's honoring to thee. And I, I do pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to uh, behold marvelous things out of the law. I pray the time together would uh, be honoring to thee, but it would truly be helpful to us as we seek to live Christian lives for your glory in this world. So I pray that you would um, assist us and give us insight and we commit our time to thee. And would would ask as well that it would be a preparation of our, our hearts and minds for a, a meaningful, enriching observing of the Lord's table as well. So we just lift these requests to thee and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day, um, our particular emphasis was on the first two verses of Psalm chapter 1. And I noted that uh, the theme that gives unity to these two verses, I believe, it's the character of a godly man. And uh, this character of a godly man is uh, presented here in two different ways. Negatively, um, verse 1 is his renunciation, what he turns away from. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And then secondly, and positively, um, it presents what he delights in. Verse 2 His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And and this idea of of, um, delighting in Holy Scripture is found in other verses as well. We noted um, Psalm 119.35, Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Another text, Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Another verse, I shall delight in thy statutes, I shall not forget thy word. And the thought here is that the godly man or woman does so because they apprehend with the eye of the soul that this is the law of the Lord. It's not just words on a page, but it's a a revelation or a disclosure. It's an unveiling of the nature and the character of the being of God. So there is this affection for it. So again, we find other verses like, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love thy law. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love thy law. Uh, Those who love thy law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. And we we notice here the great motive to to seek to be this kind of person that's outlined in verses 1 and 2 
uh, renouncing ungodly relationships and being preoccupied with God's revelation, the motivation for being that kind of person is to be happy, uh, it's to be truly a truly blessed person. Well, then um, there is in verse 3 a further incentive, a further motivation for being this kind of a person. Didn't make it that far last week, so I felt a little sense of um, lack of completion, I guess, and that's why we're looking at it this morning. But if we ask the question, well, what are the consequences or what are the effects of being the sort of person that's practicing these two complementary directives that we see in verse 1 and verse 2, what kind of a person will they be? Well, the answer is verse 4. He will be like a tree planted by streams or rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and, and whatever he does, he prospers. As one writer put it, the results of saturation in God's word are found in a delightful horticultural image, a, a tree rooted in well-watered soil. And I, I think the imagery employed here of a tree by the rivers of water um, is, a tra- is an attractive one to us as Christian believers um, and it provides the, the great incentive or greater incentive for being a person who is committed perpetually to, to rejecting those kinds of relationships and undermine our pursuit of holiness on the one hand and, and delighting in God's holy revelation on the other. The same kind of logic is found in Jeremiah chapter 17. And there it applies to one who is trusting in the Lord as opposed to man, and the consequences are the same. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of Saul without inhabitants. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. So this this imagery gives further description of... um, uh, of one who is practicing these two complementary directives. So their, their lives will be marked by, I'm looking at verse 3 here, their lives will be marked by, by four spiritual realities. And I just want to share those with you this morning in hopes that it would be um, an assistance to our thinking process. That Their lives will be marked by four spiritual realities. The first is permanence. Uh, permanence in the sense of continuing in the same state or without any change that destroys the form or nature of the thing. And I'm thinking here of the words, he, he will be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water. Kyle and Dalich in their work write, this means firmly planted so that uh, no winds that may rage around it are able to remove it from its place. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, there were some high winds here in Enumclaw. I'm not sure if it was just located here and, and maybe in other places it wasn't, but there was high winds here. And so for those of you that have been to our house, when you walk out the back door over to the left, there was a, a maple tree, and the winds were high enough that it, the maple tree came down. And thankfully, it didn't hit our house, and it didn't hit the neighbor's garage. It, it didn't do any structural damage. It, it just landed on the, on the grass. Um, but it wasn't permanent. Um, it, it, now it's removed from its place. It, it's not there anymore. Uh, that's in contrast to the point that the psalmist is making here. J. Alexander says it's the idea of continuous or permanent condition. 
A plumber writes to the planted, to be planted signifies also permanence of connection. The faith of a good man is not temporary, neither are any of his graces. He has taken root in a good place, and so his life will be maintained. So this reality of of permanence is strengthened, I think, by two further considerations under this first heading. One is to notice there's a a passive verb, planted, uh, which suggests the activity of God. So I I think there's an injection here of the thought of the the sovereignty of God, the activity of God. Uh, Planting firmly is accomplished by the being of God. Matthew Henry wrote that he is planted by the grace of God. These trees were by nature wild olives and will continue uh, so till they are grafted anew and so planted by a power from above. Neither any good tree grew of itself. Excuse me. Never any good tree grew of itself. It is the planting of the Lord, and therefore he must in it be glorified. And the way Spurgeon put it is, not a wild tree, but a planted tree, chosen, considered as property, cultivated and secure from the, the last terrible operating for every plant, then he makes reference to uh, Matthew fifteen thirteen. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. It's along Isaiah sixty and verse twenty one is along the same lines. Then all your people will be righteous; they will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Or Isaiah sixty one three, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. So it's the same logic, I, I believe, as Philippians one six. He will begin a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or First Corinthians one eight who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, what feeds into this idea of permanence is location, planted by the rivers of water. Um, it, it describes further the kind of permanence or the kind of existence that we're talking about here. It's not just existing, but it's, it's flourishing. Uh, the word rivers here, it's in the plural, which would indicate an abundant supply or and an ongoing supply. A plumber wrote, in, in hot eastern countries, trees flourish most by the side of water courses. When all around is burnt up with heat and drought, they are, they are fresh and green. And, and Kyle and Dalich, along the same lines, Wrote, he becomes, in consequence of this, he is thereby like a, like a tree planted beside the watercourses, which yields its fruit at the proper season, and its leaf does not fall off. And streams of water and the plural serve to give intensity to the figure. Streams means the, the brook meandering and weaving its course for itself through the soil and stones. The plural denotes either one brook regarded from its abundance of water, or even several which from different directions supply the tree with nourishing moisture. So the picture that comes to mind here, uh, it's not trees everywhere, like in western Washington where you go in a forest, there's a, there's a tree everywhere, but it's in the midst of dry, barren land. There, there's a tree that's not this half dead, but there's a tree that is it's flourishing because it's, it's constantly supplied next to rivers of water. In the theological word book of the Old Testament, it says he shall flourish and be fruitful because he's planted by abundant and never failing waters. Uh, the, Psalm 92 stresses the same point. Um, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. 
Well, the, the second reality that is characteristic of one who is saturating their minds with Holy Scripture, first one is permanence, and the second one is propriety. Propriety. And here I'm thinking of the, the words which yields its fruit in its season. So it's propriety in the sense of suitableness, bringing forth its fruit at the right time, at the appropriate time. So the imagery here of uh, besides rivers of water, along with yielding its fruit in its season, bring out two further thoughts. One is there's a perpetual supply of grace so that one can function in the Christian life. There's never a dry spiritual riverbed. Calvin noted we are always watered with the secret influences of divine grace, imperceptible but real and actual. And then secondly, and especially the point I'm focusing on here, um, this divine influence or, or grace or spiritual empowering comes in its season. That means it comes at the, at the right time. Uh, the idea of right time, I think, is brought out very well in these verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's the same word that's translated season in our text. It occurs over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it kind of deepens the point that's being made here. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says there is an appointed time or season for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And verse 11 says he's made everything appropriate in its time. And Plummer writes here about the godly man. His blossoms are fair, but his mature fruit is better. It comes in, in the right time and it's beautiful in its season. But, but, but here, what the text brings out is it's, it's grace or the Holy Spirit that shows up at the right time to um, impress the appropriate influence needed. Uh, Spurgeon says, not unseasonable grace, like untimely figs, which are never full flavored, but the man who delights in God's word, being taught by it, bringeth forth patience in the time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and holy joy in the hour of prosperity, Fruitfulness is an essential quality of a gracious man, and that fruitfulness should be seasonable. In Galatians 5, you probably got this memorized, verses 22 and 23, it lists the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. This indicates that the Spirit's influence is varied. Uh, These words are closely related to one another, but they're still distinct. So it indicates that the the influence of the Spirit on our soul is varied. And it's legitimate to conclude, I believe, because the Holy Spirit is wise and good and sovereign, that the the right grace will be conveyed to the soul at the right time. Uh, Adam Clark, whom Spurgeon quotes, has a good summary statement. He who reads, prays, and meditates, and that's pretty much what the Christian life boils down to, isn't it? 
he who reads, prays, and meditates, will ever see the work which God has given him to do, the power by which he is to perform it, and the times, places, and opportunities for doing those things by which God can obtain glory, his own soul most good, and his neighbor most edification. So the effect on the lives of those who are seeking by God's grace to practice these two directives is going to be marked by permanence, by propriety, and then thirdly, by perseverance. Now, I know that kind of sounds like the first point that I made, but there'll be a point of distinction here. We're thinking here of the words, its leaf also does not wither, and the lexicon that I use indicates most basically it's the idea of to sink or drop down, to languish, to wither, and then to fall or fade. And then uh, usually it's to droop like a leaf or a flower. Um, it's translated fades in Isaiah 40 and verse 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In Psalm 37, 2, it refers to the plight of evildoers. Uh, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And then it has a usage similar to our text in Ezekiel 47:12, where it's translated wither by the river on its banks on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, it's similar to the, the first point we made about permanence, but what I'm emphasizing here, the, the focus here um, is that difficulties and afflictions and temptations, when they arise, that will not be the end of a person's Christian life. That will not be the end of their profession of faith. It will not cause them to wither. Um, they won't be like the seed that we read about recently in Matthew chapter 13, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the, one, the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself. He's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. Now, Plummer wrote here, applied to a child of God, the, the leaf has commonly been supposed to represent his religious profession, his profession of faith. The leaf represents his religious profession. He will not fall away in time of temptation and persecution. He cannot forsake Christ. He will not fall away. Let me just give you an illustration of this and then a little bit of a, a theological justification. Um, especially this idea he cannot forsake Christ, his leaf will not wither. The illustration I have in mind is from John chapter 6, and we touched on this a few weeks ago because at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus fed 5,000 people, so large crowds of people are following after him in verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Then verse 22, uh, The next day the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 24, John chapter 6. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and, and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So as I indicated, he, he was doing really well up to this point in time. But in the following verses, he continues to teach. And then when you get down to verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. 
in verse 65, he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The, the word offended them. It was, it was too much for them to take. They weren't walking with him anymore. So then in verse 67, Jesus says, do you, he says to the 12 here, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter answering, answering says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And that to me is that sense of you cannot forsake him. Peter's response is, where can we go? We're not going to forsake you. There is no other options. Um, and so Peter went on to say, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then secondly, kind of a what I would call theological justification um, related to the language of fruit bearing and the leaf not withering here. It draws our attention, I believe, to the work of the Holy Spirit, the idea of fruit bearing. It draws our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. But, but two points here. Number one is to remind ourselves the Holy Spirit initiates life in the soul. It's the Holy Spirit that initially produces spiritual life in the soil. You remember our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus, and he's instructing him. And he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. There's a mystery here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So regeneration is, is a work of the Holy Spirit, becoming a, a new creation uh, in, in Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in the soul. It's a work indoors. It's ascribed to the Holy Spirit. John six sixty three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So it's the Holy Spirit that initiates new life in Christ. And, and secondly, and relatedly, it continues to be the Holy Spirit that sustains and promotes spiritual life in the soul. In John seven thirty seven, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Language is very similar to our text. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this language is reflective of our text. And the ongoing work of the Spirit sustains the soul and causes this, this perseverance in the midst of trials and in the midst of difficulties. Let me just remind you in this connection also, the great distinction between a saved person and a lost person, it's the presence and the indwelling and the activity of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between a regenerate person, a saved person, and a lost person. In Jude one nineteen, it says, these are the ones who cause divisions, the worldly mind that are sensual, and then it says, devoid of the Spirit. That's a definition of an unsaved person. They don't have the Spirit. They're devoid of the Spirit. They haven't been quickened to new life in Christ. They haven't been made alive. They haven't been raised up to new life in, raised up to new life in Christ. The Puritan Thomas Manton wrote, not having the Spirit 
This is added not only to show that they were destitute of true grace and regeneration. The next thing we may observe is that sensual persons have not the spirit. These two are contrary, flesh and spirit. They that cherish the one necessarily banish the other. The spirit is a free spirit, and the sensual persons are very slaves. The spirit is a pure spirit. They are unclean. The spirit is active, and they are gross and muddy. He's talking about in a spiritual sense here. The spirit worketh intellectual and chaste delights. That is, the effect of the spirit is for holy delights and holy pursuits. And they are for base pleasure. Sensual man knows little of the quickenings and the efficacy of the spirit. So regeneration, those who are regenerated will prefer, well, excuse me, will persevere in the faith. Their leaf will not wither. This is because they're constantly being led and under the influence of a pure, holy spirit. And they will continue to have an interest in pure and holy things. So the motive to practice these two directives Verses 1 and 2 is to know these realities, permanence, propriety, and also perseverance. And then the fourth one is um, prosperity. Prosperity, um, whatever he does, prospers. And it's the idea of to bring to a successful issue. Maybe one of the more well-known uses of that term in the Old Testament is with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. His master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And let me just offer uh, two comments in this connection. Um, whatever he does, he prospers. The, the focus here, I, I don't believe, has to do with financial prosperity. And the reason I say that is because that might tend to come to our, when you hear prosperity, that may be what tends to come to our mind. But that, and it can have reference to that, but that is not the accent here. I don't believe for a couple of reasons. One is, although there are godly people like Job or Abraham who are wealthy, there's a lot of godly people who meditate on Holy Scripture, but they are not wealthy. They're not prosperous in a financial sense. And in Hebrews 11, it lists the, the names of those who are marked by great faith. Abraham is there, but it also says, And others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That doesn't really fit the prosperity gospel. If you have enough faith, you're going to be wealthy and healthy. They're in that chapter because they had great faith. Um, and also, a second reason is that there are many who are prosperous financially that are, are godless, and they are, are enemies of the gospel. Psalm 73, the theme of the psalm is the prosperity of the wicked, and those who are against God, and they mock the being of God. Well, secondly, I believe it especially has to do with what is the deepest desire of the regenerate heart. It is spiritual prosperity. It's spiritual prosperity, because what I'm arguing here is if you're born again, that's the greatest desire of your own heart. It's spiritual prosperity. It's to grow in grace. It's to be more like Christ. It's to have spiritual graces more operative in, in your soul. As Spurgeon said, we must not always estimate the fulfillment of a promise by our own eyesight. How often, my brethren, if we judge by feeble sense, may we come to the mournful conclusion of Jacob, all these things are against me. For though we know our interest in the promise, yet are we so tried and troubled that sight sees the very reverse of what promise foretells. But to the eye of faith, this word is sure. 
And by it, we perceive that our works are prospered, even when everything seems to go against us. Spurgeon writes, it is not our prosperity which the Christian most desires and value. It is soul prosperity for which he longs. We often, like Jehoshaphat, make ships to go to Tarshish for gold, but they are broke at Ezion Geber. But even here there is a true prospering, for it is often for the soul's health that we should be poor, bereaved, or persecuted. Our worst things are often our best things. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, so there is a, a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. The trials of the, the saint are divine, a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. So it's especially spiritual prosperity that is the desire of the heart of believers. I thought these words from Second Peter 1 were instructive in this area. I'll just share a part of this. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, and by these he has granted to us his most precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply, moral excellence, and your moral excellence knowledge, and your knowledge self-control, and your self-control perseverance, and your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the, it's, it's that these qualities would ever be increasing and they would become more apparent to ourselves and more apparent to others that we are around. So the effect and the consequences of, of delighting in God's law and meditating upon it and, and trusting in him and in him is verse three. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water which yield its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And let's pray. Father, I would ask that you might take these considerations and apply them to our own hearts. And I, I pray that you would help us to be men and women increasingly uh, who know what it means to shun things that would encroach upon our growth and grace and that we would increasingly be those who know what it means know what it means to delight in holy scripture to love thy law with with our heart and with our, our soul so I, I pray that you would help us and, and give us wisdom uh, you know each of our hearts and each of our particular situations so I pray that you would give each of us wisdom in making the appropriate application to our own heart and life for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.